This past week, I heard a talk by a woman. Her name was Anna Astvatsatarian Durkate. She spoke about her experience as an exile. An exile is, you know, someone who has been forced to leave their land because of strife or war, a famine or a natural disaster. Anyway, she wrote a book also called Nowhere, A Story of Exile. And let me read the description about this book to you so you can just get kind of a snapshot of what she experienced as an exile. Uh, in the book description, it says that she lost her childhood to ethnic cleansing. In 1988, she was a 10-year-old girl living in the seaside of Baku in the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. This is when the Soviet Union still existed as a you know, massive entity there. Like any other young girl, she had childhood aspiration, crushes, and dreams. That entire life was swept away as the majority Muslim Azeri population drove the minority Christian Armenians out of the country using terror and violence. Her family was forced to flee for their lives to Armenia, a neighboring republic still reeling from the massive earthquake and unprepared for the hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing Azeri-orchestrated pogroms. That's like a, you know, a systematic uh, persecution going on there. Once there, she found herself an outsider, a nationless girl surviving in an unheated basement and facing discrimination again, this time by her own people. So her book is just kind of her diary and what she went through and now telling that Eventually, she made it to the United States in 1992 and has lived here since then, but she has been an advocate about trying to make known the plight of these Armenian exiles and what they went through during this very difficult time. Now, obviously, exile is a challenging experience, and exile has happened throughout history and continues to happen to the present day. In recent months, we all saw Afghanistan collapse and literally thousands of people fleeing from that nation as exiles. And exile is a common theme that you find in Scripture, a lot of instances of exile. You go back to the Old Testament, you see God told Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave your country and I want you to go to the land of Canaan. And so Abraham picked up his stuff and he went to the land of Canaan. He was told that he would, his descendants would inherit the land, but Abraham lived as an exile, didn't he? Well, later on, his descendants experienced a famine, and in order to survive, what did they do? They fled to Egypt, again, exile. Later, centuries after that, they came into the promised land. God told them, if you will obey my commandments with this covenant I'm making with you, you'll be blessed. But if you don't, there's the possibility that you will experience what? Exile. And after centuries, I mean centuries of sin and idolatry, eventually God brought these nations, Assyria and then Babylon, to Israel, and they were exiled out of their land. God brought them back mercifully to return home. So do you see how this is appearing a lot? Very important theme. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the theme of exile does not disappear. In the book of 1 Peter, exile is a key theme, but the exile spoken of is different. It's not a physical exile, but it is a spiritual exile that God's people experience. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, 
That's what we're going to be looking at here in the book of 1 Peter. What does it mean to say that we are spiritual exiles? Why are we spiritual exiles? And how do we live in a way as spiritual exiles that will bring glory to God? 1 Peter is going to tell us. So you're in the right place here this morning because we're going to be told how we can live as spiritual exiles, understand why we are spiritual exiles, and again, how we can bring glory and honor to the Lord. So let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter. We're going to begin a new series today. We're going to talk about today spiritual exiles, and as we go through the book of 1 Peter throughout the next few months, you're going to see some incredible topics that this book addresses. But this morning, actually, we're just going to cover the first two verses. In case you're getting a little bit worried, think, well, how long is this series going to be, Pastor? I promise you, I'm going to go a little faster than two verses at a time. It won't be a whole year. Probably just be a few months. But 1 Peter chapter 1, we're just going to look at the opening two verses. All right, so let's read these verses together, okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, there's a whole lot going on in that greeting, right? He doesn't just say, how you guys doing, all right? These biblical greetings and these letters are often loaded with a lot of content, a lot of rich theology, and Peter's one of the riches. So let's start back from the beginning here. The, the letter comes from Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. If you recall, Jesus selected 12 men to be apostles of his ministry. They were to be his chosen eyewitnesses. In 1 Peter 5, verse 1, he will call himself, as it says there, he was, um, he was a, quote, witness to the sufferings of Christ. So these are words from someone who saw Jesus himself, saw what he went through, okay? This isn't just third, fourth-hand knowledge. This is from an eyewitness, and Jesus selected these eyewitnesses, church, because he wanted them to be his chosen representatives to pass on his teachings very accurately and very authoritatively. And after the apostles died, there were no successors to them, right? There was no one coming after them. And so therefore, we need to read these words as binding truth, amen? These aren't just you know, nice suggestions for your life, but these are Jesus' chosen representatives to be his witnesses and spokespersons about what he taught. By the way, in early church history, there was no dispute whether this letter came from Peter. It was accepted that it came from the apostle himself. Peter, of course, had a very special place among the apostles. He was the first apostle chosen by Jesus. As we saw the last couple Sundays, he was the first one to declare Jesus' identity, his ultimate identity, right, as the Messiah. Peter got it. Remember those words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the spokesperson of the apostles and preached at Pentecost. Remember when all these Jewish pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem for, for the festival? 3,000 of them heard the message and believed in Christ at Peter's message. 
Peter was also known for his failures, like denying Jesus three times on the night before the cross. Now, we see Jesus, or excuse me, Peter in the book of Acts. We don't really know definitively a whole lot more about his life from that point. Church history tells us that he went to Rome sometime in the 50s AD, and that that is where he wrote this letter, probably in the early 60s AD, and then he lost his life under Emperor Nero, who had a widespread persecution sometime in the mid-60s. So that's just a little bit about Peter, the author of this wonderful book. Who is he writing to? He says he writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he mentions five different provinces of the Roman Empire. We got a little map up there. This area is, is Asia Minor. It falls into modern-day Turkey. That area that you see circled is about 300,000 square miles. And, you know, it's striking to me. Isn't it amazing how fast the church grew in such a short period of time? I mean, that's just one section of how fast the church grew in just about 30 years or so. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I, you know, I was thinking about those carriers of these letters because they would have written these letters and then they had to go carry them out to these different, how would you like to walk 300,000 square miles? <laughs> they didn't have UPS back then. They didn't have email to send it on. So those poor carriers, they were in good shape after carrying all those letters. Now from hence in the letter, the churches that he was writing to were predominantly Gentile Christians. But there were probably also some Jewish Christians among them. Remember I just mentioned how Peter, he preached at Acts 2 to all these Jews who were coming to celebrate Pentecost. And in Acts, it mentions three of these regions, how the Jews came from these regions. And it's very likely that some of them heard Peter preach, became Christians, and then went back to where they came from and helped start churches. And now here's Peter 30 years later, writing to these very churches that he helped start in an indirect way. Isn't that pretty cool? Now, of course, the question you might be saying is, why does he refer to them in this way? You know, why didn't he just say the churches there in these areas? Why does he call them the elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, again, I don't think he's talking about them as physical exiles who were kicked out of their homeland or fled from their homeland. I think they are spiritual exiles. In other words, God changed their spiritual citizenship, not their political citizenship. This sinful, fallen world was not their true home anymore. Their true home awaited them in the new creation. And you're going to see this theme in Peter. It's a, an important theme here. Peter's original audience that he's writing to here, they're exiles, okay? They're exiles. And we are exiles too. Indeed, all of God's people, both Old Testament and New Testament, we're all exiles. We're waiting for our true homeland when the Lord Jesus returns and establishes his new creation. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer's talking about some of the great heroes of the Old Testament. 
And he says about them, quote, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, we are exiles, is what Peter is saying here. All the Old Testament believers, all of the New Testament believers, we are all exiles. And I want you to understand and feel a tension that is found in the Christian life. On one hand, God wants us to understand and embrace that we are spiritual exiles. Sometimes we feel like it's wrong, right, to, to think, to feel like an exile. But to the contrary, it should be perfectly natural to feel like you are an exile in a sinful, fallen world that rejects the knowledge of God, that pursues sin, pursues idolatry, persecute Christians, you should feel like an exile. Jesus says similar words in his uh, teachings in John 15, verse 18 and 19. He says, if the world, now when he says the world, he's not talking about the created world. He's talking about the sinful, fallen world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So when we think about this, and we think about our fallen world around us, yeah, there are times when there is agreement about different things that we might uh, have in common because of God's common grace. But there are going to be a many times when we will not have the same beliefs and shared values, will we? And it will make you feel like an exile, that you don't fit, that this isn't your home. And I believe God allows us to experience this sense of exile to cultivate in each of our hearts a greater longing for our true, ultimate homeland. The longer I live as a Christian, the longer, the more I long for my true home. And I think God gives us a little bit of glimpse of this in our personal lives when we think about maybe our individual homes. You know, the old saying is true. There's no place like home. Unless you have a broken home, most people think that's true, right? Home is where your heart is. You might leave here this afternoon and, you know what, your gas is on empty, right? So, hey, I, I need to go to the gas station. And you go there and you gladly go to the gas station because it beats having an empty tank of gas on a cold day, right? Do you want to stay the rest of the day at the gas station? <laughs> I don't. I want to leave, right? I'm glad for the gas station, but I want to leave. I want to go home. Or, you know, maybe you have a nice meal planned. You have a, a nice restaurant that you go to. It's your favorite spot. 
and you enjoy a great meal. And maybe the food's better than what you have at your house. That might be the case. But you probably don't want to live there, do you? You might go on a vacation where you see incredible sights and the weather's warm and all the rest. But after a while, you know what? Something will start stirring in you. I want to go home. I want to go home. Let me ask you a question. Are you growing in your longing, your longing for your eternal home? I think as Christians, we should long to be with the Lord. We should long for Him to return. We should long for Him to renew all things. We should long for Him to rise us up, as Kevin sang about that last day, when we will rise on eagles' wings and stand with a body that is no longer riddled with sin and mortality. We should realize and understand that this world, that sometimes this fallen world that we're so enamored by, is actually passing away, as 1 John 2 says. All the greed and pride and lust and idolatry that we think is so glitzy and glamorous, it's all passing away. All of it. And instead, the righteousness of God will stand forever. We shouldn't cling to those things. We should focus on eternal things. Amen? So on one hand, God wants us to understand and embrace that, you know what? You are a spiritual exile. On the other hand, and here's the tension, God wants us to live well as exiles. He wants us to make the most of our exile. Specifically, Christianity does not endorse escapism, right? We don't become Christians and then say, okay, this world is passing away and it's filled with sin and all this stuff. I'm going to go flee this world and escape from this world and get as far away as I can. I don't want anything to do with it. I understand the sentiment, but that is not the will of God. Rather, God wants us to still enjoy the many blessings that he has embedded that, is, that are still there even though this world is fallen. There are so many blessings that God wants us to enjoy and not sit and gripe about this world constantly. And even more importantly, God's given a mission to the church, hasn't he? To go to this world and tell this world about the hope they can find in Christ. So first, Peter itself guides us in this purpose, and it contains some very practical, helpful teachings about, you know what, how do we deal with the government? How do we handle uh, marriage relationships? How do we deal with relationships in the church, and how do we live out this mission? God wants us to honor him as we live as spiritual exiles. Does that make sense? Changing gears here a little bit, notice how Peter calls us elect exiles. And I think this really you know, speaks to our glorious salvation that he's about to dig into, our glorious salvation. This is really important. We are exiles because God has elected us. We no longer belong to the world. 
God chose us out of the world. Not because there's anything so great about us, meritorious, deserving about us, but simply by his own amazing grace. In verse 2, Peter gives three characteristics of our salvation. Let's read them again together. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So you'll notice that the work of the Trinity is involved in this, right? These three characteristics. Each person of the Trinity is involved with a characteristic. First, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The reality of our election is based on God's foreknowledge. Now, his foreknowledge includes more than just an awareness. God knows who will believe in him. But there is something more going on here than just simply an awareness. Often in Scripture, when it speaks about God knowing his people, it's not just that he is aware of them, he knows their facts and things about them, but there is a relationship with those people. And so, for example, in Amos 3, 2, it speaks, God says of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So is God saying, you know what, I don't know anything else about the other peoples of the world. Is that what God's saying? The God who knows every single fact that ever could be known? No, he knows all of the peoples of the world. But he's talking about, I have a relationship. I know this nation of Israel that he did in the Old Testament. Speaking of relationship, 1 Peter 1.20, a little bit later, just skip down a few verses there. It says of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. God foreknew Christ. Did he just kind of have an awareness of him? No, they're both eternal. They had an eternal relationship with each other. And notice, he also brings about this mission of redemption, right? He sent Jesus to the world. Y'all tracking with me so far? So likewise, God knew us before the foundation of the world. There was a relationship there, not just an awareness, not just an awareness, and God guided the events that led to our knowing Him. Does that make sense? He knew you before the world ever began, and He brought about these circumstances so that you would know Him. Romans 8, 29 to 30 describes this. It says, quote, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sometimes theologians call this the golden chain of salvation, that from the, before time began and all the way through the rest of eternity, God knew salvation for his people all of it's linked together. So God foreknows his people about their salvation. And then he brings it about in time and history. All the way to the end of time, what is called glorification there. So God foreknows his people. Not just knows about who will believe in him, but he brings it about in this golden chain of salvation. He sets his covenant love upon you. And so, Christian, I really encourage you, 
to think deeply about that life-changing reality. God foreknew you and set his love upon you. The most important, powerful person in the universe, the creator, the judge, the redeemer of all, he knew you. You, you, you. That changes your life right there. And will be dramatically helpful for you as you are a spiritual exile in this world to remember that the Father knew you before the world ever began. So the first characteristic is the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second, it says there, in the sanctification of the Spirit. What, is, what does that word mean, sanctification? We hear that, right? It's in the Bible. What does that word sanctification? Basically, it just means set apart. And so sometimes sanctification is used in the Bible to talk about how we grow in our own godliness as we set apart the Lord to ourselves, right? Here I think he's using it as it is often also used in Scripture, how God sets us apart. And here specifically, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, how he sets us apart to God. And he does this by making us alive to God, where we move from spiritual death to spiritual life. God makes us alive. Has that ever happened in your life? Where you can say, you know, God made me alive. I remember the day I became a Christian. I drove into the church building arguing with my brother, having all these questions. Well, what about this and what about that? Nothing wrong with good questions, but I was not spiritually alive. I left that building spiritually alive, praise God. Because the Holy Spirit set me apart. He made me alive. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 echoes this reality. And notice again the work of the Trinity. It says, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So the Father foreknows us. The Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart. Third, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Let me start with that latter part there. What does that mean, the sprinkling with Christ's blood? You want to have a little Old Testament lesson real quick here? Because that's what we need to understand what he's talking about. In Exodus 24, when God ratified his covenant with the nation of Israel, they established the covenant with the sprinkling of the blood of an animal sacrifice. Literally, the people were, were sprinkled with the blood, okay? They were sprinkled with the blood. That established the covenant in the Old Testament. That is no doubt in Peter's mind as he's writing these words. That was the background, okay? Now, we are not literally sprinkled with Jesus' blood, okay? But that blood stands for the death, the sacrifice that he gave to bring our forgiveness. And so, friend, you must be forgiven of sin since we are all guilty. There's no one sitting in this room who is innocent of sin. We are all guilty of sin, and we all need forgiveness. And God cannot just kind of unilaterally forgive people, otherwise his justice is compromised. So there has to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. Do you see that? Someone else has to take your place who was a perfect sacrifice. And only one has ever done that. Jesus Christ. 
We don't just come to God in heaven. Sometimes people have this arrogant attitude, I'm just going to go to heaven and argue my way in. (laughs) Or I have a lot of money. Or I've done a lot of stuff. No. You have to be forgiven of your sin. Because he's a righteous creator and judge, and he will not allow sin into his presence. We have to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. To be washed clean from our sins. Come on his terms, not ours. So Jesus' death is the means of forgiveness and peace with God. Now let's look at that first part there. Obedience, right? Obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, he might be talking about obedience in the sense that as Christians, we are to obey the commands of God. He might be talking about that. But I think he's still talking about conversion here because 1 Peter will often talk about obedience to Christ in the sense of salvation. For example, go down to verse 22. Peter says, quote, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. You know, when you become a Christian, there's a real sense in which you are obeying. You are obeying Christ's command to repent of your sins and to believe in Him. You're you're, you're following a commandment that He's given. It is a gracious invitation, but it's also an authoritative summons to repent of your sins and to turn to Jesus. If you've never become a Christian, have you ever thought it that way? This is a command. The Lord Jesus is giving a command here. He's saying, I'm I'm commanding you. I'm giving you a summons, right? You get a summons in the mail. You're not wise to just kind of ponder that, right? You need to do something about that. Jesus has given a summons to us. He's given a summons. This isn't a choice whether you like Italian or Mexican food. This is a summons. And he's saying, look, I'm summoning you to turn from your sins while there's time, while you have the opportunity for life and to believe in me, to believe that I am who I claim to be, the Son of God who died for your sins and if you'll believe, you will experience eternal life. And that's my prayer for each one of us today, that that has never happened, that you would respond today to stop saying, you know, it's this nice little choice, I'll get to it one day when I have time or a little bit later when life slows down a little bit. No, this is a summons. Just like, again, if you got a summons in the mail from the federal government or something, you would put that at the top of your to-do list, wouldn't you? The greeting closes with these words, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter wishes them grace and peace. Does that sound familiar? Because in Peter's two letters, in all of Paul's letters, They write in their greeting those two words, grace and peace, to their listeners. They're not just kind of superfluous church words, but they really reflect deep spiritual realities. Why are they so important? Let me just start with grace. The essence of Christianity is about grace, isn't it? We receive God's unmerited favor. Nothing we deserve. It's all based on what Christ has done for you and I. We don't receive salvation based on our good works. It's all what Christ has done. We just believe it by faith. Ephesians 2.8.9, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your undoing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. 
so that we receive salvation, not by, by our good works, but by God's grace. You could call that God's savings grace, God's saving grace. Let me ask you a question, though. Does grace stop once we become a Christian? He's writing to Christians, but yet he's still saying, I, I want God's grace to be multiplied to you. Grace doesn't stop when we become Christians. It's just the beginning, isn't it? People call this sustaining grace. We need God's grace in every area endeavor of our lives. First, uh, First Corinthians 15.10, St. Paul says these words. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What are you going through right now? What's going on in your life? What trial did you bring in with you this morning? How are you tempted to be disappointed with God right now? What doubts are you experiencing? What sin do you keep falling prey to time and time and time again? And you think, well, maybe there's just no way out of this. What relationship seems to be uh, unredeemable? I got a word for you today based on this. God's grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for you. And, and notice what Peter says. May grace be multiplied to you. Not just added to you, but multiplied to you. Whatever you are in, mark it down. God's grace is sufficient. Sufficient for you. Never throw up your hands as a Christian and say, there's no hope for me in this situation. There's no way out of this circumstance. I cannot change. God's grace is sufficient. He will multiply it to you. And He wants you to take it into your life. Not so that you can walk around and pat yourself on your back and say, I'm such a great Christian. No, so that you can be like Paul and say, I am who I am by the grace of God. But he doesn't want us to walk around defeated, does he? He wants you to walk around with a sense of power and victory because of the grace of God in your life. He also says the word peace. Now what is that talking about? Well, in the Old Testament and New Testament, the word peace talks about God wants us to have harmony and fullness and restoration in our relationship to him and in our relationship with every other human being. And so Peter wants these believers to experience that fullness. Even though they were being persecuted, he still wanted them to have peace with everybody as much as possible. Now, in Peter and Paul's greetings, they always put grace before peace. That's interesting. I think they do that for a reason. Because grace needs to happen before we experience peace. We take in God's peace, or excuse me, His grace, and then it gives us a peace with God and a peace with others in our lives. And so church, let me encourage you to seek the grace of God as you walk as spiritual exiles here on this earth, and God will give you that grace. And you can have peace no matter what comes your way. So that was the greeting. <laughs> That's quite a greeting, isn't it? That's why I just covered these two verses this morning. Unbelievable. 
helps us understand the reason for our exile, spiritual exile, and how God will give you grace and sustain you, gives us greater realities, greater, a greater vision of all the things that are going on, God's grand story of redemption that helps us and encourages us and builds us to know that, that the Father foreknew you, that the Spirit sanctified you, that the Son has cleansed you. Yes, we are spiritual exiles, but not forever, amen? But in the meantime, First Peter is going to help us on our journey. So I hope that you'll be here next week as we continue that step by step.